<laughs> so, like she can't understand or or pretends not to understand right. that someone put him in the bag right. after having delivered him as a baby the normal way. Yep. She just at least in- My daughter will not marry luggage. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everyone. It's another beautiful Monday. I think we do this a lot, though. It's a Monday or whatever day you happen to be listening to this. It's a pretty reoccurring (laughs) theme. We uh, Obviously, we release on Mondays, but we know many of you listen throughout the week, and we're grateful for all of you out there who are listening. Yeah, thank you all so much for all your comments and 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 the fact that you're listening and engaging with stuff. We love getting to talk about plays with you. Um, today we got another one coming your way. Yeah, that is we, right. A, a that's really what, classic that's what we do play. Here. We try. Yeah, we we try to balance between uh, doing plays that are more modern and then plays that are in that sort of core classic group of theatrical scripts. So we, we've done Circle Mirror Transformation and The Wolves and Bluff, all of which are relatively modern. Some of those are older than others. But mm-hmm. this time we are traveling back more than 100 years. 100 more years. than 110 years. More <laughs> even than 120 years. Whoa. We are doing <laughs> The Importance of Being Earnest by the famous Mr. Oscar Wilde. Yeah, yep. I'm excited to get to talk about this one. Like we said, it's it's from the past, so there's some fun uh, century differences that I'm sure we'll get to suss out. And uh, <laughs> I've gotten to see this play. I've had friends who have acted in it. I've watched the various uh, movie iterations of it, and I, I enjoy a lot of the comedy in this play. It's 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 the subtitle in my script is a trivial comedy for serious people. Yes, a trivial comedy for serious people. And what people take seriously and what is, in fact, very trivial is maybe one of the central themes of the play. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, definitely. Before we jump into the play, I do want to thank you all for all of you who have already gone over to Patreon and to encourage those of you who haven't to go check it out over there. We're doing some more stuff this month over there, so it should be pretty. We got some good tiers going on uh, at the $1 tier. As low as $1, you can get access to some of those patron-only posts that we're doing over there. At the $5 tier, you get producer cred. We're going to be uh, uh, saying your name at the top of the show, and uh, yeah, you get to be known as a producer of No Script, the podcast. So if you have a minute, head over to, to uh, patreon.com slash no script podcast and we'll see you over there. Yes, please go over to Patreon and find our podcast page and help support the work that we're doing here. We can't say it enough. One dollar a month to support the work of No Script. Based on how our hosting fees are, if a couple of you decide that you can do one dollar a month, that will be able to help us cover our hosting fees immensely. Yes, indeed. So um, let's jump right in. Let's get into uh, importance of being earnest. 
Yes, of course. As you said, the play has been done so much. You've seen it a couple of times. (laughs) I've seen it a couple of times. Surely every high school in America has done it. And Every, like, competition, one-act high school team has done it because it's pretty short. And, mm-hmm. it, yep. You know, it, it, it has that kind of um, – it's permeated into American theater in the same way that something like Fiddler on the Roof has. Now, the quality of those scripts are a little <laughs> bit different, I think. Not that I don't like either one, but Fiddler is, is of a different caliber probably than Importance Being Earnest, although – uh, perhaps our our, thea- our our more theatrically inclined audiences <laughs> don't like me for saying that. So I'm going to move on before I get myself in more trouble that way. The play <laughs> was originally premiered in 1895. So like I said, more than 120 years ago. It doesn't feel like a 95 year would be more than 20 years ago from now. Right, But right. it is 24 years ago and then 100 years back beyond that. It premiered at the St. James Theater in London. And then since then, there have been, uh, as you can imagine, a plethora of revivals. I'm not going to just list them all. Many, many, many occurred. Some of the more notable ones that have starred maybe more famous people recently. In 1982, Judi Dench played Lady Bracknell. Uh, Then in 1993, apparently, Maggie Smith played Lady Bracknell. Uh, In 2011, there was a Broadway revival that actually went on to be nominated for three Tony Awards. Interestingly, at the time that it was 100 years old, a journalist, uh, not a journalist that I know, but a journalist named Mark Lawson, said that the importance of being earnest may very well be the second most known and quoted play in English after Hamlet. Wow. Is that unbelievable or what? I don't know if that huh. would be true now, twenty more than 20 years later, if it still has that kind of permeance. But apparently in the 90s, it was the second most known and quoted play in English. Huh. That is interesting. I I wonder if that's because that's right after the movie came out or something, or yeah, I wonder if it, why it if was it so prevalent. Yeah, hit there. Yeah, I'm not not quite sure. It's very funny, and as we've said, many 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 people know it. I still think that there's probably some high schools that teach it in some yep. drama class or English class or another. Mm-hmm. So it, it it exists in that realm too. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll synopsize it real quick, and then we'll kind of jump into some of the some of the themes and the characters and such. Um, this is a, a almost a farcical uh, uh, kind of comedy of manners style of comedy. Um, we have uh, the two main characters uh, are John Worthing and Algernon Moncrief. John Worthing is uh, often referred throughout the play to as Jack, and Algernon is Algy. Um, so that's probably who you'll hear us referring to. Right. This this play exists in a time and place where Jack is a nickname for John. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I mean, I have heard that and I know that that maybe at one point was true. And if there are any Johns who go by Jack out there, I don't mean to offend you. That doesn't <laughs> seem true anymore. Right, right. It also doesn't make sense at all as a nickname. They're both <laughs> one syllable J names. Right. <laughs> so you didn't save any time with that nickname. No, and it's the same um, number of letters. Like, right. just no benefits whatsoever. <laughs> yep. But nevertheless, he's called Jack throughout most of the play. Um when he's not being called Ernest. Um, there's uh, Lady Bracknell, who is Algernon Moncrief's aunt, and then Lady Bracknell's daughter, Gwendolyn Fairfax. Um, 
Then we have, so that's kind of the city crowd. We'll, we'll put them in the city crowd. Algernon, Lady Bracknell, and Gwendolyn Fairfax are firmly living in the city. And then John Worthing comes from the country to the city to party, basically. Um, then in the country, uh, there is uh, John's family as composed of Cicely Cardew, who is his ward, um, related to his adopted father, as we'll find out later. There is her governess, Miss Prism. And uh, Reverend Canon Chasuble, uh, who have a, a bit of a, a, a love af love affair, as it were, during the play, and then Merriman the butler and Lane the manservant. Merriman being John Worthing's uh, servant, and Lane being Algernon's manservant. The play takes place over three acts with these characters, and it is a kind of a pretty straight along narrative of John comes to town and accidentally lets slip to Algy that he has uh, family in the country and that he comes to London under a pretense of taking care of an imaginary brother uh, who is uh, uh, a hellion, uh, someone who, who he uh, says to his ward who he's trying to raise well that uh, gets into all sorts of trouble, that he always has to go bail out his brother, Ernest. And uh, Algernon turns out he has a very similar strategy to get into the country when he doesn't want people to uh, to invite him over or something and uh, he calls it Barnabry um, so he calls uh, Bunbury I'm sorry yes. Bunbury Bunbury yeah and uh, so he accuses him of a, a Bunburyist, and then Algernon manages through a series of events to get the address to Jack's house and that's kind of the spark that takes off for the rest of the play. Jack doesn't. Jack knows Algernon is is. Um, He's a little bit of a devil <laughs> may care himself. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't want him coming down to the country and and uh, being a part of his family down there. But he doesn't mind being his friend in the city. And he especially so, doesn't want Algernon anywhere near Cecily. Cecily is newly exactly. eighteen, and Algernon has had some questionable things to say about young women and marriage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. <laughs> Jack doesn't want Algernon anywhere near Cecily, who's his ward, his responsibility, this person that he's been raising and taking care of, and is she's newly an adult. And so he, he wants them far apart. Yes. Yep. And then the other, probably, probably the other uh, complication that I'll bring up right now before we jump all over the place is John Worthing, Jack, is in love with Gwendolyn Fairfax, Lady Bracknell's daughter, and Lady Bracknell is Algernon's aunt. So that's how those four all move together. Lady Bracknell does not like John Worthing, and uh, but uh, John and Gwendolyn love each other. So they are trying to uh, to uh, get married, get engaged uh, against Lady Bracknell's desires. Right, and Gwendolyn and Lady Bracknell, of course, think that Jack's name is Ernest. Again, because he's in the town, mm -hmm. so he's pretending that identity. Whereas in the country, his his ward, his goddaughter, I guess, Cecily, believes that his name is Jack. And, uh, yep. and then, as Jackson said, Algernon is Algernon in the city and then manages to sneak out to the country and pretends then to be Ernest in the country. So there's this sort of odd mm -hmm. flip-flop of identities. This is not by any stretch of the imagination of what one would call a revolving door comedy. Um, but it does share a little bit in the sense of there being disguises and mistaken identities in that sort of farcical right. genre of comedy. It, it's an odd mix of farce and comedy of manners, really. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of impeccable timing, yeah. but not necessarily like revolving doors. Like, like at one point, so, Algernon, pretending to be earnest, runs off to get christened or to set up a christening or something like that. And that at that exact moment, Gwendolyn Fairfax arrives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How could you couldn't have timed that, that better if you tried? There's like I, when I was a kid, I used to watch Bible Man, and there's a great running joke in Bible Man where they always go, "It's almost as if someone wrote it that way." <laughs> I feel like that quote is just all throughout this play. It's like, "Oh, she showed yep. up right then." It's almost as if someone wrote it that way. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Shocking! How could it have come about? Yeah. So, so, so we mentioned at the beginning of this, why that, that this play is done in high schools and it's done rampantly around, uh, I think throughout schools still, um, maybe a little less so than when I was growing up. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's in the common vernacular. Why? Why is an interesting (laughs) question. And perhaps the, the way to, to access the, the the meat of the answer is to figure out what makes this any better than any of the other crappy comedy of manners <laughs> that you could do. Because, like, I mean, mm-hmm. go to your local used bookstore. You can buy volumes right. of crappy old English comedy of manners <laughs> that are just <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> unproducible anymore. I mean, you'd have to do right. some work to make those watchable and make any sense at all. So what makes this particular script any better than any of that? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think uh, as, a, as a starting ground, I think the characters are really well written, um, especially the, uh, the Jack and Algernon scenes are just a, a tangle of wordplay. That is is exemplary um, over and over. There's a, there's a lot of puns in the plays and switches of of the ways that um, a, a kind of a turn of phrase comedy in a lot of ways. They will they will take the ending line of the, what the person says and flip it on them. And they're like, ah, stop doing that. Mostly Algernon does that. Um, Algernon carries a lot of the play, in my opinion. The, that character is a pretty electric character. But it is the relationship between the two of them that I think is... Uh, draws a lot of the worth out of it. Yes, I agree with that. Some of the writing is just so sharp. It's I mean it's it's funny even to read just yeah. in terms of the linguistic humor that Oscar Wilde is, is capable of producing. And interestingly, this play is easily his most successful of any of his scripts. And one of the reasons why people think that might be is that Wilde kind of gave up on writing a play about anything. <laughs> you know, he just said <laughs> I'm going to write a play about the stuff that I'm good at, which is really funny exchanges and nothing else. And that, I mean, that's the entirety of the play. The play is not really about anything. It, it In the sense of it being a comedy of manners, it makes fun of uh, English aristocracy and it has some fun interesting jabs at uh, how seriously people take certain things. But at its core, there's not like a deep social theme or anything like that. And what people say is, well, Oscar Wilde was trying to write these deep social theme plays for a while and not doing a great job. <laughs> and then he up and just decided to give up on that. And I, I think I even read that he, he he claimed that he wrote this play in response to a theater asking him uh, for a play that is not about anything 
or isn't so serious or something like that. And so he just sort of wrote a play that is full to brimming with witty repartee. And (laughs) Algernon and Jack are the height of that, although both Gwendolyn and Cecily have their fair share as well, especially the scene with just the two of them. Mm -hmm. That, to me, might be the funniest scene in the whole play. Yeah. Yep, both both of the times in the in that second act where where the two the 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 kind of buddy squad is over here and then uh Gwendolyn and Cecily are alone, both of those scenes just stand out in my mind constantly whenever I think of this play. They're they're what you picture it. I think Bracknell is the is the other Lady Bracknell is the other one that has a lot of really good lines and just just this whole play you laugh throughout. I mean if you if you're at all if you're at all interested in having a good time when you go to see this play, you'll you'll have a good time. Like it's it's really funny. Bracknell, for instance, seems just dead convinced that Jack came out of a bag and his parents are a bag. Yeah. What in the world? <laughs> so, like she can't understand or or pretends not to understand right. that someone put him in the bag right. after having delivered him as a baby the normal way. Yep. She just at least in- My daughter will not marry luggage. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, Lady Bracknell is such a, a just such a memorable character that you read that there used to be productions with Judy Dench and Maggie Smith playing her, and you're yeah. like, oh, what a time! Uh-huh. <laughs> what a time for just powerhouse women to play a powerhouse character. Absolutely, if I remember correctly, I think Judy Dench plays her in the movie version, and she's fantastic. I, yeah, I haven't in seen it. any of the movie versions. That'd be interesting to watch, and so. Like you were saying, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the play has got the kind of staying power that is a little bit shocking every time you read it. Right. You're like, oh, this is this is the importance of being earnest. I mean, I read it in high school along with everybody else. I've never done it, but I've seen it a couple of times. And every time I pick it up, I'm like, this is that play that everybody does all the time. <laughs> that's interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's very funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think that's I think that's the 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 end result is it it gives you these characters who are very fun to play. I think all all the characters are pretty fun to play. They all have their moments where they shine over the others, and then they all have their moments where they are beaten by the others. So it's it's fun for young actors, especially I think, to play these roles and to kind of adopt these goofy, almost Midsummer Night's Dream esque sort of characters who kind of are frolicking around making a mess of things and just enjoying some of them enjoying the mess. It's oh that's what it is. It's like it's a bunch of chaos monkeys with a bunch of order monkeys. And they're just like <laughs> trying <laughs> to make the things happen and they just won't happen the way they want them to. <laughs> yeah, and and I agree with your analysis too that the characters are really sharply written, really uh, they're really filled out for being just this sort of English comedy of manners. And I say just, it's by Oscar <laughs> Wilde. It's, you know, it's it's eminent. It's it's a wonderful play. But right. it's, it's, at its core, it's just a funny comedy of manners. And that's why it's 
huge fame and success and trajectory is is sort of shocking and kind of delightful in some ways. But part of it is just that the characters are so sharp and so full. They're, you can imagine lives and opinions that these characters hold that put them in juxtaposition and conflict with each other. You know, I talk about the scene with Cecily and Gwendolyn just stands out to me among the whole play as these two women try to sort of, they end up just sort of circling each other. Right. Metaphorically, waiting, pouncing for the other one to just let in that little sliver of especially rhetorical and linguistic weakness <laughs> that allows them to bully in and get their way. And, and so the scene that I'm describing is Cecily has just been proposed to by Algernon, who is at this point masquerading as Ernest Worthing, I think, mm-hmm. um, who is supposedly Jack's evil brother or or um, misbehaving brother. And so the brother, quote unquote, shows up. They fall in love over five minutes, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And they, he proposes and he runs off to get christened because Algernon knows his name isn't really Ernest. We right. haven't talked about that either, that it has to be Ernest is the name. Right. Um, that's a funny part of it. <laughs> and so Cecily thinks that she's been proposed to. Meanwhile, in a previous scene, Gwendolyn is proposed to by Jack, who, because he's in the town, remember from the beginning, because he's in the town, everybody thinks his name is Ernest. So he proposes, and Gwendolyn thinks that his name is Ernest. So she believes she's engaged to an Ernest Worthing, and she gets his country address so she can come visit him secretly. Well, unbeknownst to both of them, Algernon has gone and pretended to be a different Ernest Worthing <laughs> at the – actually the same Ernest Worthing but different. Right. <laughs> at the country home. And so anyway, the, neither of the brothers are around because they're both off trying to get christened so that their real name can be Ernest Worthing. Yep. And in that time, Gwendolyn arrives and they have this very pleasant conversation where they talk about uh, all this stuff. And Gwendolyn's immediately concerned that her fiancé – she doesn't reveal that she's – that he's her fiancé yet, but her – whatever, is uh, has a, such a beautiful young ward, and she's a little concerned about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Cecily says, oh, don't worry. I, I'm not Ernest's ward. I'm Jack's ward. And she says, oh, I never heard of Jack. I, Ernest never told me he had a brother, Jack. But and no one really talks finally, about their brothers. Nobody talks about their <laughs> brothers. That's right. <laughs> And finally, they both figure out that both of them think they're engaged to Ernest Worthing, and they have this delightful back and forth about who has the better claim. Right. Like at one point, uh, Gwendolyn is like, I I hope that it won't cause you too much pain to realize that I had the prior claim. Yeah. And, and, and Cecily, yeah, go. It's all based on their journal entries, too. Like, <laughs> that's right, because they keep the diary. Right. And <laughs> so Cecily, like, pulls out her journal as her corroborating evidence for he just proposed to me just now. And then seemingly out of nowhere, um, Gwendolyn produces her own diary that she has written yesterday that Ernest Worthing proposed to her. And her excuse is something like, one must always have something sensational to read on the train into the country. <laughs> Yeah, so Gwendolyn says, I, I hope it doesn't cause you pain that I have the prior claim. And then Cess is like, oh, I, I hope it isn't too upsetting to you that it appears Ernest has changed his mind. Right. <laughs> and so it, it's got that sort of English, um, especially stereotypically English, I'm not going to offend you, but I'm going to say things that are sharp and jabbing. Right. And I love it. They, get, they go back and forth and they start to get really mean. And then the manservant arrives with tea. And there's just this moment of incredible awkward tension before Cecily finally, based on this society manners, is forced to say, would you care for some tea, Miss Fairfax? (laughs) Yep. 
<laughs> yeah, and and which which then spirals into some more delightful comedy around like lumps of sugar in the tea, and she like serves her way too much sugar and all that. This this is a play that we we've had a couple plays in a row where silence is prescribed within the play. Um, uh, where, where the playwright puts in silence and demands that, or at least, uh, requests that the actors and the director, uh, accede control to them in that and that they follow the advice of their silence. This play has barely any beats of silence, but the lines, I think, I think it assumes that the actors have comedic timing. And you, <laughs> right. I mean, because because it's just such a bold comedy. Mm-hmm. There's no beats, and and even even the word beat or pause in a script is it's almost a signal of a drama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if you're writing a comedy, it, it almost is counterproductive to include notes to the actors about when to pause because you end up making the actor prescribe their own comedic t- or you end up prescribing to the actor their comedic timing right. whereas you're right the the pauses are there and actually I listened to an audio production of this play today and the pauses are there and they're mm-hmm. exactly where you think they'd be <laughs> but they don't they're not written in and it, it it asks the actors to know what's the right timing for this line how should I deliver this line in pace with the other lines to land the best? Yeah, which I picture all throughout that scene with the T, especially later on once they have thrown, you know, their verbal barbs at each other and the T comes out. Then, then I imagine moments of prolonged silence and uh, <laughs> and 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 use yeah, well, of yeah, silence and, and enormous prop comedy, even in scenes like that too, right? Because as she's serving the tea, Cecily, the the young ward, says, "Oh, well, would you like any sugar in your tea?" And and Gwendolyn gets a dig at her. No, sugar isn't really taken anymore. It's not popular. And so then Cecily puts in lumps of sugar, and then they they won't hand it to each other because they're so furious. So Cecily hands it to the manservant, who hands <laughs> it to Gwendolyn, and Gwendolyn realizes she's got sugar in her tea, and then she asks for bread and butter, and she gets cake instead all handed across this manservant character i mean it's enormously funny just the physicality that's again not really written into the text but required by the beats of action yeah Mm -hmm. which which isn't a uh, it's a it's an exciting thing to get as an actor maybe this is a a part of part of why it is consistently done as well it's you kind of get a bit more of a blank slate than a lot of the plays that we have done on this anyway, um, you get to, on this podcast, you get to uh, look at these lines and put your own flavor and spin on it. What do you find funny about these lines? Yeah, absolutely. There's a great example of that, in fact. Um, so when Jack, so in scene at one or act one, Jack has proposed to Gwendolyn and uh, Lady Bracknell, is that right? Mm-hmm. Lady yep. Bracknell has uh, barged in and said, "You have, no, of course you're not engaged. Your father and I decide when you're going to be engaged. Get out of here, Gwendolyn. I'm going to interview Jack myself. And so she proceeds to do this long interview. Of course, it serves some exposition. There's some very funny jokes that land in it. But one of the things that uh, Lady Bracknell learns is that Jack ha- has lost his parents. She immediately takes that to mean lost as in their dead and she makes sort of an ill ill, Ill humor but very funny joke <laughs> yeah. about how like well if you lose one parent it's such a misfortune but if you lose two it just looks like carelessness yeah. 
<laughs> so she's got a great joke in there. Eventually, Jack reveals that I don't mean I lost them as in their dead. I mean that I don't know who they are or where they are. Uh, my adopted father found me in a handbag in a train station. And Lady Bracknell has a line, and the line is, a handbag? And that line is known throughout the theater world to be one of the most blank lines, as in there you can bring so much of your own interpretation to that line. I'm not I'm not totally sure exactly what about that line makes actors feel like it's so blank, so open to interpretation. But you can read about the various famous Lady Bracknells throughout history and how they interpreted the handbag line. Right. The line is just a handbag. Yeah. And she's questioning, what do you mean a handbag is the subtext? But there's so many. You could burst out enormous and, and affronted and angry, which is sort of how she ends up in this scene. A handbag. And there, I read this one like, famous actress I don't know her name she delivered it by sort of whispering it and the the writer was talking about how cool that was Mm -hmm. I mean so lines like that exist throughout yeah absolutely that scene in general is such an interesting scene as you because Jack so far has been performing okay for (laughs) for his interview with Lady Bracknell and uh, suddenly he just launches into this weird story that he's that you almost are, are shouting to him why, why are you telling him? Why are you telling her this? Stop. Just stop. And uh, but but that I, I think that's maybe part of why that that reaction can be so varied and interesting. And, and you're right. It is all over this play. There's there's so many instances where you can where you can layer on some of your own timing. I'm thinking of the muffin scene as the other really yeah, great or, scene. Or the cucumber sandwiches. Yeah. The, cucumber the, sandwiches. The, <laughs> yeah. The, Algernon is known for <sighs> just eating anything and everything right and he has one of like we've said a couple of times there, there's some running commentary throughout the play about what people take seriously and what they shouldn't take seriously and Algernon thinks that meals is one of the things people should take very seriously and right away when Jack comes in in act one he finds Algernon eating these cucumber sandwiches that are supposed to be for his guests later and Jack says what are you, are you I always see you eating why yeah. are you eating and Algernon's like well I think it's customary for people to take a light refreshment at five. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then like later on the, the there's he, he, he kind of says I eat when I'm nervous and and or uh, in fact when I'm when I'm really nervous I give up everything besides food and water. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but like the, the the muffin scene is the one that like stands out in my head of like this really great scene this back and forth. It's also a scene that a lot of actors get stuck into a loop on cuz there is some repetition in this scene. But yes. uh, but but really like the the he offers he's eating these muffins over which are uh, English muffins uh, for for those of you who are who are uh, American listening, and uh, <laughs> which is most of you, um, and and us and us. Um, but he's eating these muffins, and so Jack comes over and steals the muffins back and forth. He offers him cake. He says, "I don't really like cake. Do you want to eat cake?" So all of that is just, I think, a great uh, great blank slate for actors running into it. Yeah, enormous physical humor without the kind of lengthy physical humor. 
um, that you might find actually written out and described in something like Noises Off. Right. Or another kind of comedy of doors. Not that Noises Off is a comedy of doors, but uh, a revolving door kind of comedy where the doors slamming in people's face, people getting hit by stuff. That kind of big physical comedy would be written out because it's so important. The physical comedy in this sense isn't necessarily important to the forward action of the play. In fact, not much is very important to the forward <laughs> action of the play. Really, if you were going to condense the lines of dialogue down to just the ones that mattered for the plot, it's probably a third the length or less. <laughs> down to like cultural references too. Like my my script comes with a lot of footnotes. Like this play was written for its time. Uh, there's there's lots of notes like uh, a political humor about France and Germany in relation to England. There's uh, the kind of the, the 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 regional humor of of they, they name specific counties outside of London and expect you to get the joke, um, and and then they just kind of roll on and 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 just in general the kind of aristocratic style of living is is assumed as something that people can look at and kind of laugh along with if not at. Um, so it's it's a very time and regional specific play as well. Yeah, uh, definitely. And and as with any good comedy of manners, the play is really about and and kind of makes fun of the people who are wealthy, you know, this is these are people who have a town home and a country home, right? And and people whose primary income is from, I kid you not, investments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Man, <laughs> that that joke doesn't land in 2019. No, not so much. <laughs> yeah, there's even like a line that's that where Bracknell says, "Well, three houses. That's that's good. It's it's really respectable yeah. to have three I houses." I always like to see three addresses. Behind someone's name (laughs) (laughs) and you know these folks are rich and luxurious and that is the life they live and some of what oscar wilde does using this format is to say the lives of these people are ridiculous yeah (laughs) the things they care about and the things that uh you know, actually matter are just so far divulged. The Lady Bracknell interview scene that you were talking about earlier is a really great example because like you said, Jack does really well at the interview and even if even if that part of it mattered. First of all, Jack and Gwendolyn love each other. They've known each other for a long time. Yep. They're passionately in love. And so setting aside the fact that that matters at all, given the society, <laughs> yeah. uh, which it clearly doesn't. She doesn't ask him about that once in the interview. But then even all the rest of the th- questions that she asks him in the interview, he succeeds pretty well on. She mm-hmm. doesn't have any problem with all of his answers. She asks him if he smokes. He says yes. She says good. He <laughs> a- she asks him if he knows everything or nothing. He says nothing. She says good. Right. She asks him about his income and his interests and his political leanings, and he he checks every box all the way down the list until she learns that he doesn't have any notable family members, that he's, if not an orphan off the street, uh, something very close to it, found in a handbag at the train station. There's a joke in there that doesn't really land on our ears anymore when he tells us, uh, she, she says that he was found in a train station and he mentions the specific train station and apparently... That was like the fancy rich train station right. in the London. Brighton so he was, the Brighton. So he was even from like the good train.
train station (laughs) rather than the bad train station. And that's not enough for her. So there's this and Oscar Wilde clearly is making fun of her for that. This idea that he he's so perfect for Gwendolyn in all these ways, besides the fact that they're in love in all these other ways. He's so perfect and they're perfect for each other. But because he doesn't come from the right family. Right. It's never going to (laughs) happen. Yep. I just that, that that scene in general is just such a hilarious scene. There's a lot of mirroring in this play too. That scene is mirrored again in the last scene where uh, Lady Bracknell is uh, interviewing Cecily, Jack's ward to marry Algernon. And uh and then we we get back into the handbag thing all over again and we get a whole lot more exposition about well it turns out that there is that that the, the nurse oh my gosh we haven't even talked about the 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 priest miss prism and the priest yet um but yeah it all a lot of the mirroring in this play there's like you'll see one scene and then that scene will kind of replay again later on with a different outcome and more exposition exposition comes from it it's an interesting right. structure in, in fact that's almost the primary plot mechanism used mm-hmm. or the pli- primary structural mechanism used is this use of mirroring you know at the very core of the play is this odd world in which in act 1 Gwendolyn reveals the only perhaps the only reason or at least a qualifying feature of Jack for reasons why she's in love with him is that his name is Ernest or so she thinks and I could only be in love with you his name is Ernest only Ernest is a trustworthy name I could never be in love with anybody named Jack it's got to be Ernest Ernest has all these characteristics about it it's musical It, it produces vibrations when you say it Ernest and so she goes on and on about that and it's patently ridiculous and there's a ton of dramatic irony because of course we all know his name's not Ernest and you think, oh man, oh, that joke. Whew. God, that was a good one. Uh, that was very funny. Good one, Oscar Wilde. And then, sure enough, <laughs> half the play later, Cecily is discussing with Algernon the fact that they're in love. And again, she believes Algernon's name is Ernest. And what does she reveal? But that her whole life, she's only ever wanted to be in love with a man named Ernest. And how great all the the name Ernest is and how it has all these great characteristics and how it's a disqualifying feature if his name wasn't really Ernest. But it is Ernest, so we can be in love. And of course, it ends just like in Act 1 with Algernon in this case, Jack in Act 1 case saying, I better go get Chris. Right. <laughs> yep. Down to like the responses are are very similar as well. Like Jax is like, uh, but what if what if like like I was named? Oh, I don't know. Jack. Jack is a pretty good name, and that yeah. same thing happens in the ne- in the next time too. Yeah. What Algernon. if I was named Algernon? Yeah. Right. Algernon is a pretty good name. Pretty and good they both rejected. And then even the christening joke is delivered virtually the same way in both scenes. Yeah, yeah. Jack in scene one says, "I better go see a priest about getting christened." I mean, getting married. Right. And then in the next scene, Algernon does the same joke. He's like, "I better go see the priest about getting christened." I mean, getting married. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's it is an oddity of a joke, but its oddity doesn't make it less funny. I don't know why. <laughs> like, it's, I, I mean, <laughs> part of its humor is just that the pun is so enormously obvious. Yeah, it's the the pun on Ernest is so built in to the fabric of what the play is. In fact, the 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 play has no existence 
outside of the pun on the word earnest. Absolutely. If they were named Ralph, I don't think it would be funny. Right. Because the 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 pun on earnest, as in honest, and the names is it's the it is the fabric of the play. Yeah. Is this idea that they're deceiving by claiming to be named earnest? It's the title. Yep. <laughs> the, I mean, Oscar Wilde was like, line. "Hey, uh huh. If you hey, you know what this play is about? The whole thing is about a guy." Whose name isn't Ernest, who's not a very honest guy, who says that his name is Ernest, which means honest. Actually, let's make it about two guys who that's about. No, that's right. It's not even about one guy. You thought that was funny. It's actually about two guys. Right. I don't know why I gave him that accent. Right, he's, right. he's definitely he's not British. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then 120 years of people said, "Yes, that is funny." Uh, well, and, uh, you know, there's something um there's something pure in the joke. Yeah. I, and that's what I think what I was trying to get at. The reason why such an odd joke and such an odd parallel scenes, you know, oftentimes comedy writing comes in threes. So you'd almost expect that joke to happen again. Mm-hmm. But something about the fact that it doesn't, that it's these two guys and it's the same deception, the same play on puns, and that Oscar Wilde is not trying to be subtle about it at all. Right. He is just throwing the pun out there. Something about it gives this sort of pure communal experience, right? It's not really about being clever enough to understand the joke. The joke is laid out on a silver platter on a big old (laughs) CeCe's Pizza Buffet for everyone to enjoy. And there's something pure about that experience, about that kind of comedy. Yeah, the wink and nudge is very, very prevalent in this one. You you feel like you're almost in relationship with the playwright as you're watching it because there's just so many ridiculous recurrences and occurrences and coincidences throughout the play that I, I, like, I like what you said about it kind of being this communal experience with everyone involved is everyone is in on the joke. The joke is there. And, and if you want to have a good time, laugh with us about it. It'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, and and there's plenty of humor that not everyone is going to get in this play. Some of it, which just has to do with the play kind of aging out yep. more and more as some of the societal things that he's making fun of don't exist so much anymore. And some of it is just that Oscar Wilde was a smart writer of dialogue. So like we've talked about, that kind of back and forth witty exchanges, some of that is going to go over some people's heads. But Something about Oscar Wilde deciding to make the core of the play the most obvious pun joke in the history of the world and then letting everybody know that this is what's funny. Right. This is what you're here to see. This is what you're going to laugh at. Here's two of the longest scenes about the silliest, smallest (laughs) little pun in the history of the world. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> There's just something about that that says, like, this is for everybody. Mm-hmm. This this humor, the joke is for all of us to get together. And because we can all get it, we can all laugh about it together without feeling dumb. Right. Because everybody in the room knows what's going on. So you don't have to be the one that gets the dumb joke. It's a communal group sense of, like, all right, 
he broadcast this pretty hard, right. this particular play on words. But oh, who cares? <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, I imagine this is not the play where you have like that one or two voices laughing at a given joke where like, you know, the couple people who are really tracking the play get it and laugh. I think this is a this is an uproarious experience when you do this play. Most of the people are laughing at the same time and just because the humor is so, so there, so on point, so obvious in some ways, but clever in some others. And I, I absolutely agree that 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 it is accessible to so many people. I was even trying to consider reading it, what it would look like to do an anachronistic production of this. Like, what what does it look like to do this play and set it now? How much work do you have to go into to try to overcome some of the the dated aspects of aristocracy and uh and and just facebook alone like just imagine how this play would not work if you can look up Ernest worthing <laughs> so <laughs> although to be honest that idea of being able to like know about the activities of someone who's not present is sort of what the the bunburying is on Jack's part because unlike Algernon's uh, sense of bunburying and, and just to remind everybody bunburying <laughs> is the word that Algernon uses to describe pretending you have an engagement or especially a person that pulls you away frequently so you can do what you want rather than have to meet your responsibilities or your social <laughs> obligations or just say no to something <laughs> or, or yeah just to be able to have to so you don't have to say no to anything so Algernon invents the word because he hasn't this invalid friend apparently again there were Word, not ours. Obviously, we would not call anyone an invalid right, nowadays. Right. But this is what he says. He has an invalid friend who's always sick, always dying, and that constantly pulls him away so that he can go do whatever he wants instead of have to go to dinner with his aunt. In that case, though, the difference between what he and Jack does is that Algernon is not pretending to be the invalid Fred Bunbury, right? right? He just goes to see him and then is still himself secretly doing something else. Jack's version of it and it's the reason why I think Algernon is praising him throughout act one and then several other times throughout the play for how good he is at the game is that Jack goes to town and then pretends to be earnest part of it is the reason why is that because Jack feels like he has this person to take care of this young ward he feels like he has to be this sort of moral socially upright person so when he goes to town he wants to be this partier like you said very early in the podcast he, he wants to party do whatever he wants live however he wants so he goes to town and pretends to be earnest right. but what does that mean that means that there's a reputation built up in London for a person <laughs> named Ernest uh -huh. who loves to party and live wildly so I don't know even in the world of Facebook that all Almost could work. Uh -huh. Like when he's in London, he would take pictures on the Ernest Worthing page True. of him partying. You know, that's kind of the same thing he was doing is building up a reputation of a real person, quote unquote, mm -hmm. that is living the same sort of life he describes his quote unquote, his brother, quote unquote, Ernest. I've said quote unquote 10 times now, <laughs> but hey, you, you see what I mean? There, yeah. There's a sense of like using that, that strategy to his benefit. Mm -hmm. It would almost have to be a twin though. Like if he was posting the pictures and then someone looked up Ernest Worthing. Yeah, from his if, if you were going to set it out of time and then involve Facebook, you'd right, have to right, right, insert, right. you'd have to change the lines a little bit and make it a twin brother. Right, right. Um, and then she, well, how would she know when Ernest shows up? So there's right. some of that. There's some of but, that. But yeah. I, but I, honestly, I, 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 you know, I thought the same thing when I was reading it. Could you, 
um, set the play out of time like we do with so much of Shakespeare. I kind of think you could. It'd be really and that interesting might to even see, be yeah. a pretty successful production. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think it'd be a really interesting challenge. I think it's kind of fun to have these really kind of dated lines really thought through lines uh and and witty repartee coming out of people who are like texting and and sitting around and and in in modern uh society which we don't do as much of this uh verbal sparring as much anymore um at least not in this way i think it'd be a really fun way to do the play yeah no but, i agree so <laughs> we, we've me. mentioned <laughs> so we've we've mentioned a few times um that there are some challenges with the play being now hundred almost 125 years old. Um, let's let's examine some of those, Jackson. Yeah, uh, I'll take uh, I'll take the easy boat since you'll have some time to think about it. Um, <laughs> the play's attitude towards women, uh, especially the attitude of the characters towards women. I'm not sure Oscar Wilde carried quite the same attitude, but the the attitude of the characters towards women is is crass and just certainly not acceptable in this modern day and age. A great example is the line, and I, I honestly don't know if I directed the importance of being earnest. What I could possibly do besides just cut the line, where Algernon. Um, Jack is – they're talking about something and Jack says like, um, what, do, what do you do when a pretty girl wants to take you out or something and whatever he says. The response that Algernon gives is uh, you don't do anything with pretty girls besides sleep with them. And then if they're plain ones, you just sleep with someone else. Right. So I mean, jokes like that are just in ill humor. They probably landed a long time ago and they just they're, – they're – clearly way over the line uh, with our hopefully more uh, compassionate <laughs> sensibilities. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm not sure that the whole play takes that view in the same way that some of the characters do. Actually, the two women that Oscar Wilde has written, I suspect someone smarter than me, that, well, the, the two main women, Jackson just reminded me with his fingers that there are plenty more women than that in the play, maybe four total Maybe more, uh, but the two main women, Gwendolyn and Cecily, they're they're very strong characters who have clear desires for themselves, desires to overthrow the social expectations you know that are desired for them. I hope somebody smarter than me has written kind of a, a, a feminist reading of Oscar Wilde's importance of being earnest and w- what we can take from his writing of those two particular characters. So I'm not sure the play takes an overwhelmingly patronizing negative view of women, but certainly the characters being people of their time do. So that's something to think about and overcome whether productions of this play are eminently worthwhile anymore given the attitude its characters have towards women. Yeah, I think it's a good tension to live in if you were to do this play, to name it and then figure out what to do with it. Um, Because because you're right, uh, especially the male character's language around women is appalling in some cases. Married to that, though, is I don't think the men actually win a verbal spar with any of the women in this play. <laughs> May- well, right. May- That's what I was saying. <laughs> yeah. the, the women are easily more competent yeah. than the men. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they easily trick the men into changing their names. Right. Finally, in the final act of the play. 
Yeah. Without much effort whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And then they comment on the fact that they were so easily able to do that. Right, right. So I think there is a way through, but I think you need you need to live in the tension. You need to name it and 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 figure out a way to if if you need to cut a line like the one you mentioned, then then those are the sorts of things that you need to have the conversation around. I think the other Probably the other big glaring one in my mind is just this uh, this style of life. Um, you, you have to figure out a way to make it funny to people anymore because we don't uh, we don't live with a visible aristocracy. We uh, our our aristocracy is much more subtle. Um, it's it's in uh, you know people with yachts and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so it's you have to figure out how to approach these people. Um, in, in the society that they're in and make it funny to people without that context anymore. Um, down, down to the, the kind of one of the big struggles as I was thinking about it. And if I were to set it somewhere is to set it somewhere where trains are as prevalent as they are in this play. Like you, you, you have to set it in a place where people can catch the train every hour or something like that. And that's just not something in, in my experience, at least that I can do. So, so it's, it's stuff like that. It's, it's going through the minutia of the play and the assumed vernacular of the play and seeing if it remains funny to your audience. And right. Yeah. And there's kind of two levels to what you said, right? Cause there's the, there, there's the larger level view of like, do people really find plays about rich people that funny or enticing anymore? Especially American theater, which is sort of zoomed down from focusing on mostly the rich and powerful to mostly focusing on the every person. Mm -hmm. In general, that's a trend. And so there's that level. And then what you said, the minutia, the line-by-line comic bits. For example, a joke that is clearly supposed to land heavily in Act 1 is when Lady Bracknell is talking about the dinner she's planning. And Algernon is uh, bunburying, so he's pretending right. that he has a friend who's sick that he has to get out of it. Uh, and Lady Bracknell makes some joke about how, oh, you're going to throw my table all out of order. My husband's going to have to eat upstairs. Lines like that clearly have a social context mm -hmm. where I don't know if it's that there has to be a certain number of men and women at the table or there has to be a certain number of pairings at the table or something right. that makes the joke about why her husband has to go eat upstairs funny. Yep. Or like the, the party season is mentioned every once in a while. One of my footnotes was like, the party season was May to July in England. And so this was the last party that she would be throwing during the party season. It's like, <laughs> thanks, footnotes, for really explaining that joke. But yeah. <laughs> you won't necessarily get stuff like that. for, And sometimes that can take up, you know, a good quarter of a page is a joke building to something like that. So you have to figure out a way to make those land still. And you can you can do it. There are plenty of ways to do it, I think. You can do it with physical humor. You can do it with slight adjustments to lines. But those, I think, I think that is the biggest, one of the other big challenges of this play in my head is, is making those sorts of jokes funny to people. Yeah, the, the comedy of manners that it is. You have to find a way to 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 approach our audiences now and still get them to understand what you're making fun of. Right. In the way that comedy of manners works. So yeah, I, I think what we both mentioned kind of occupy some of the core problems with this play in a, with a more modern audience. The sort of social views of people, uh, of classism, and also of gender identity and things like that. And then the, the fact that it's a comedy of manners trying to make that part of it accessible to modern day audiences. Let's return to the question we began with, Jackson. What makes the play 
in exciting to even consider seeing anymore or right. doing anymore after this whole long discussion. What is interesting to you about the play? I think what's interesting to me is it's almost, I don't know exactly what to compare it to, but it's become a part of our theatrical history so much so that I would go to see how people play the blank scene. Like, how do they say, uh, what, what was the line again that, that everyone... A handbag. How did they say, I would go to the play to see how the character playing Lady Bracknell says, a handbag. I would go to, this, to the play to see how someone plays the muffin scene. I would go to it to see how the... Uh, how the, uh, the 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 tea scene happens and how the trading back and forth and that argument. I, I would go to it because the lines are that good. <laughs> and I, I and I think they 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 are still exciting to watch. It's exciting to see what people bring to them. And the the experience remains fresh somehow, um, or at least different somehow. And and that that is the main encouragement that I would have to go to see this play anymore. Yeah, and I just think it's still funny. (laughs) It still has that core, pure comic experience that you want from a comedy that's just not about much else. Right. (laughs) You know, in theater that's not community theater or educational theater, there's just not a lot of just good old-fashioned comedy done anymore, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you go to a play like this, and you're just not going to get much else out of it than a good laugh. It doesn't have that much to say at all, and what it does have to say is either fairly dated or not, it wasn't even that that insightful to begin with. Right. <laughs> so, but it is funny. And it's funny because of the sharp writing and the strong character work. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the fact that Oscar Wilde just said, you know what? This is what I'm good at. Yeah. <laughs> and so here you go. Here's my best. Mm-hmm. Here's what I've got if I'm going to boil down my work and my style to its core. Is this kind of a just purely to laugh your butt off at people doing patently ridiculous things? Yep. <laughs> well, I think that's pretty much what we can what we're going to talk about for today, but this conversation can continue with you. I know many of you have seen this play. Some of you I know have been in this play. Um if if you have an experience either watching the movie or Uh, reading the play or being in the play we would love to continue the conversation with you you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter with the username at no script podcast or uh we have a gmail as well no script podcast at gmail.com and if you want someone to talk over some of uh, some of these plays or if you think we got some of the stuff wrong or uh want to want to kind of poke fun at some of our interpretations of things we'd love to have that happen too. find us on any of the social medias and uh the email we'd love to keep talking to you If you liked this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, there's something that you can do that would really help us out. Besides going to Patreon and becoming a patron, the next best thing you can do is share the episode. Share it on your social media. Share it with your friends. Talk about the the podcast, the work that we're doing, the scripts, what's coming up that you're excited about. We'd love for you to be encouraging people to join our community in that way. We have a great community already, and we know that because you like scripts, that's why you're here. You probably know people who like scripts, so let's get them involved too. You can find our podcast at Podbean, at Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on Google Play. Perhaps the easiest way to find it is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where a link to every new episode is posted on Mondays. Yeah. So until next time, next Monday, when we're coming at you with another script, I'm Jackson Nikolai. 
I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script. See ya. Thank you.